you know, it's one of the reasons I'm at SAS. I love, I think marketing's role is really that translator to take these incredibly complex things and make them relevant to not just the people we want to have as our customers, those, those technology decision makers, but also humans as a whole. Honestly, you know, the bright, the silver lining in the pandemic was it was a really great mechanism for us to show how analytics can make such a difference in the world. Welcome to Talk West, where every episode will be diving into the latest topics and trends in advertising, marketing, design, and more. I'm your host, Chris Bunn, joined as always by Mike Manganillo. In this episode, we continue our series on the business effects of COVID-19 by getting philanthropic. We sat down with Natalie Osborne, the Director of Brand Marketing and Creative at SAS, to discuss her work with the Incident Command System at SAS that helped them manage marketing operations during the pandemic. All right, Natalie, thank you so much for joining us. We're happy to have you today. It's great to be here. Thanks for the invitation. And Natalie, I think before we get into your story and everything that you've been doing at SAS recently, which is very exciting, you know, our listeners are gonna know right away that you, you have an accent, which is great for us because there's data out there that shows that guests with accents bring up listenership by like 50%. Can you give a little background of where you're from? And then you can kind of talk about how you got to SAS. Absolutely. Well, thanks for recognizing the accent. It's uh, <laughs> sometimes very confusing to folks because I've lived in a lot of different countries over the years. And I often get the, hey, what part of England are you from? And then I say, I'm from the really southern part of England, <laughs> like the southern hemisphere. <laughs> so I'm actually from Australia. <laughs> I, I grew up in, a, in an area called the Hunter Valley, which is around two hours north of Sydney in New South Wales. And if your listeners um, drink any wine, you will know that area for being one of our premier vineyards in Australia. So we produce a lot of wine. It might be labeled the Hunter Valley. It might be labeled um, Southeast Australia. So that's my, that's my background. Been in the U.S. around 20 years. First landed in Minneapolis, which was a very big shock to an Aussie girl in sure. terms of weather. Yeah. Yeah. What took you from Australia to Minneapolis? It's a very, very different culture. <laughs> Yes, it was. And actually, I really grew to appreciate Minneapolis. I think um, the CEO of the company I, I was working with in, in Australia asked me to come over and run their, their uh, customer service and service delivery groups. And he told me then, there's no bad weather, only bad clothes. And I took that to heart and, and joined the uh, wonderful culture in Minneapolis of getting out no matter what the temperature is, mm. and actually started to enjoy that climate quite a lot. Very yeah, cool. I, I visited Minneapolis once. I'm much happier down here. The fact <laughs> that they have to build one of those, those walkways everywhere during wintertime, so you literally don't need to go outside. I was like, yeah, I'm good. <laughs> the skyways. I think they've the saved a lot, a lot of people's bacon over the years, right? When you're not used to it. But Minneapolis is a great city. It's very vibrant. There's a lot of culture there. I think it won a, an award not so long ago to best weekend city in the US, which I was thrilled for them. But uh, there's a lot of things to do there. It's a really interesting place to visit in the summer. <laughs> so could you tell us about your, your current role, uh, what you're doing at SAS right now? Sure. I'm actually just been very focused at SAS on messaging 
uh, and brand over the last few years and just recently was put into a role where I'm focused now on brand marketing and creative. So I have the entire creative team at, at SAS, which includes a wonderful internal group of folks who are focused on supporting our go-to-market efforts. Um, we have designers, writers. We also have an extensive video team that we work with that produces a lot of the video content that you see from SAS. So I'm, I'm in, in the midst of an extremely creative bunch of individuals and I'm thrilled about it. That's awesome. I heard from a little birdie that you uh, recently took on like the incident command system for uh, COVID at SAS over the last few months. And I'd love to know a bit more about what that project, what that scenario has been like at SAS. It seems like a, a very important thing for a company that size. Yes, so we, we formed an incident command system and, and for the listeners who are, who are tuned in, that's a government mechanism for managing in a crisis. It actually started back in the 70s when about a thousand catastrophic wildfires were burning across California. They were destroying homes, taking the lives of Californians. And during the magnitude of that incident, the response activities spanned across multiple parts of the government. So um, what they suffered from though was a bit of a lack of accountability, a very confusing chain of command, which I think we can all appreciate in today's uh, America, that kind of confusing yeah. government structure. Um, <laughs> sure. There was a lot of bad communication, a little bit of inefficient systems and process and, and generally a lack of coordination. So at that time, they created this mechanism called the incident command system. And that quickly became a national model for how you would manage through a kind of limited duration incident. Very relevant to COVID, we hope, right, that it's a limited duration incident. Yeah. But that's used by um, governments and organizations today. So back in March, when we, we just kind of transitioned to working from home at SAS and we're starting to see the impact across the globe of this, this uh, crisis, one of my colleagues noticed, you know, we had a, a lot of passion and a lot of energy, but we weren't getting a lot of focus. There were a lot of different ideas going on across the company. So Steve, my colleague, pitched uh, maybe using this incident command system to our senior leadership to help us bring a bit more focus and kind of acceleration to the business. So this wasn't super new to SAS. Um, we'd use this model in our continuity of business team and it's really designed to support critical decision making um, in the form of a, the crisis and making sure we're prioritizing where we focus. I, th I know you both know um, how familiar with SAS and we support customers in a wide range of industries. And we had some industries that we work with that were under extreme pressure, particularly public sector, uh, health and life sciences and manufacturing. So we wanted to ensure that we were really being very responsive and helping our customers in those industries weather this crisis, hence the incident command system. So how, did that, how has that gone? It seems like it's been extremely helpful and productive for your customers. It's certainly made us a lot more agile. So we followed the classic structure of it, which included this focus on being agile, very modular. We had more streamlined and kind of integrated communications. We consolidated our action planning and operations. So it was a very small management team of, of seven folks. We were in activation for about 16 weeks. And, and during that time, I want to say we 
we pretty well achieved the objectives we set out. We had hundreds of ideas from across the company about what we should do in this crisis, how we should help customers, ideas for specific use cases in industries where we could come in and with the power of analytics actually help make a difference, get some answers, get hands around data. Uh, we actually boiled those ideas down to 13 use cases that we labeled as a priority. And then these use cases drove the creation of enablement materials that helped our sales team engage with customers very quickly. We also developed marketing materials, digital content, thought leadership, and media pitches that were created to get our message out into market in record time, but not compromising on quality. Everything that we did was really industry focused and we were really lucky in that we had a, a very experienced scientific and medical domain team that advised us on everything we did. So I took over the role of leading the marketing communications team and really was supporting them go to market for those use cases that we were focused on. When I was talking to you prior, you mentioned about, you know, one of the, one of the things that you did was offering um, some of your services as a free trial to people. And I noticed that around other industries as well, especially when I first started giving people, you know, free access to kind of try to just gain their interests and then make sure that they're, you know, gain more users. Can you talk to some of the free trials that you offer up to get people to kind of use SaaS in a different way? Sure. So early on, the scientific and medical part of our team had put together a public dashboard that really tracked the progression of the disease. And we were getting great traction with that dashboard. In fact, I used to use it every day to see where the cases were, how they'd changed over time, sort of what the, the progression was looking like in the different parts of the globe. Obviously, having family in Australia and, and friends in many other countries wanted to make sure I had a handle on it. But during that time, we also had feedback from customers and prospects that they wanted to get their hands on and manipulate the data themselves. So the incident management team set up what we call we called a data discovery environment. And that put the data from Johns Hopkins and the World Bank in customers' hands, along with the power of the SASVIA software to help them model the outbreak data by themselves. And, and you mentioned, Mike, we had a huge response to that. Honestly, for me, that was one of the most aha moments I had during this project. Giving what amounted to trial software with data that was already cleansed, ready available, and ready to go on our platform, along with a really clear purpose and, and almost like a passion for like, I want to find these answers, really made a difference for us. In fact, 80% of the people who accessed that trial were new to SaaS, so it was a great experience for us. It's certainly influencing how I'm thinking about our brand level actions moving forward. That's great. And uh, I mean, it was such a crazy time and there's so much going on. How did you have to adjust the type of messaging and content that you put out then? And then how is that translated to the stuff that you're doing now as we kind of go through it? Sure. I mean, I was really blessed to work with some really creative marketers during this period. And, and honestly, it was, it, it's not often in your career you get to sort of step out of the regular day-to-day -day noise, noisy business that we all deal with, focus in on working faster and have that very much endorsed and empowered by our senior leadership, which was, which was another blessing in this whole process from our, our CEO down. It, we were very invested in making this work. So that sort of drove a lot of kind of non-traditional approaches to marketing 
compared to our traditional or what we'd done in the past. One of the examples, uh, you know, we talked about was campaign packs that we developed for these priority use cases. And they were basically accelerators. We called them the igniters for a lot of the activities we did in market. Generally, we'll will develop a campaign playbook for larger, bigger campaigns, sort of more far reaching campaigns. But these were kind of almost the opposite of that. And they were focused on point campaigns and spun up very quickly. And within that, we had the strategy and messaging, the content suggestions, media pitches, headlines, even creative uh, treatments, as well as uh, ideas for them to tie into existing events and campaigns. And that really allowed us to get out and work at speed in the market and, ch and change our messaging. Generally, our approach was divided into three phases with our messaging. It was respond, recover and reimagine. And we did some really fun content partnerships like with the Economist Intelligence Unit. We did work with them on their global business barometer, which was a pulse across the globe of how people were feeling throughout these three phases. So we channeled a lot of our content into thinking of things throughout these three phases. The other thing I was really lucky to have in the team was very, very strong global representation from our regions. And that it helped us immensely as we thought of moving through the different phases. You can imagine it's really easy for us to get caught up in what's happening in the US right now, especially as we're headquartered here. But what our global colleagues helped us with was really understanding how things would change and what was almost to come for the US since we were kind of at the end of the, the experience when it came to the pandemic. So that was, that was really helpful for us to, to adjust content and also have a pulse on what was happening slightly ahead of where we were in the US, but to be able to get that messaging and that content right in the market. That's really cool. Like having the the foresight, so to speak, from these other countries and these other nations and how things are going to progress and, and change, giving you guys the ability to adapt. And, you know, it's, it, it goes back to that agile uh, development that you talked about earlier. Like it allows you to get that messaging out in front of other people in a bit more of an anticipatory way. Were there any specific examples you felt like you learned something new that maybe you didn't expect, or maybe we went counter to something you had expected that allows you guys to pivot in a more impactful direction? Yeah, I think one of the one of the benefits of working is at SAS is we have really deep industry expertise across the team. And what we found, especially from the Marcom team, is we were able to leverage that industry expertise in really new ways. And what, one of the areas we, we did something different that had great results was in how we looked at the industry challenges individually, but looked at their relevance across the industry. And that helped us identify how we could combine marketing efforts in some cases to drive better results. So one example of that is our supply chain stability use case. I'm sure you both remember the frustrations we all had early on in the pandemic in just getting toilet paper and cleaning supplies, right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I, I don't even want to open my closet and show <laughs> you what is in there right now. I, I got super lucky in that my, my parents had noticed this happening in Australia before it even started happening in the US. So I was oh, well prepared. Wow. There you go. I'll keep you clued in on future, future supply chain tips. <laughs> But that, that really was just a direct result of massive changes in the supply chain as different countries move from spending perhaps half the day out of the home to all of their day at home. It created that rebalance in the percentage of goods that were being produced for commercial use versus the percentage of goods that were being 
produced for consumer use. Obviously, a lot more emphasis on consumer use, shortages started to occur as, as manufacturers adjusted. So those challenges don't just impact one industry. They impact retail, they impact CPG, manufacturing and life sciences. And in one case, we were able to help a customer by using epidemiological data to look at disease progression in countries that had kind of gone were earlier on in the pandemic, they'd experienced the impacts earlier on in the pandemic, take that disease data and combine it with demand data to see how would that change the demand for goods in specific countries and customize it to the kinds of goods that that country would be. A good example would be, the kinds of goods that, that folks were buying in China at early on in the pandemic, could we take the disease data and use that to model what people might need more of in Italy, for example. So that was a really great example and just shows you how important supply chain stability might be as we're thinking forward and thinking about a potential vaccine coming into play. Yeah, that's really cool. It's supply chain management's one of those things that it doesn't happen in front of our eyes. It, it's all behind the scenes. You just kind of go to the grocery store and it's like, yep, there's, there's hand soap on the shelf that just appears there magically. But there's so much else that goes into it. And understanding how that behavior is shaped by our circumstances, like I found that fascinating because you mentioned life sciences. You know, I think that our personally, our grocery bill has probably gone up so much more because we're at home cooking three meals a day as opposed to maybe one. And so all of these farms and these, you know, harvesters out there are trying to raise more crop because they're meeting a higher demand now. How is their process changing as a result of that? And that technology that you guys can leverage when you can look at, you know, other countries that maybe may have embraced it a bit sooner, how that's impacted them and the things that they need to do to change to meet that demand. That's, that's fascinating to me. Yeah, it's a lot of fun. A, a lot of that translated into the content directly, and, and that absolutely has had an impact on the perception at SAS. We made some really key changes to some of the content pieces we used to enable sales, specifically the kind of briefs we gave sales to help them facilitate that conversation with customers. You can imagine the agility we had to have there serving a global sales team, many countries in different phases of the pandemic and, and making sure that we were, we were answering and supporting the customers in the way that we wanted to. So we looked at what we really needed and we, we took timelines around that kind of content development down from like four, a month to two days. And wow. that, is, that has just been such a boon within the sales and marketing teams in terms of facilitating a really great collaboration with sales. A lot of our sales teams were really responsible for the industry expertise and the knowledge of what the customers were going through that influenced that content. So it's opened up doors for us to collaborate in better ways, spurred some new kind of approaches to sales content that we will continue to work on. Yeah, what, what I love of, of listening to all this, you know, because I have a background in, in media and analytics is hearing you talk brings me into, there's been so much talk about, I wrote down like big data analytics, predictive modeling. There's a lot of people that talk about it. There's few people I feel like that put into action, right? And I think hearing you talk about how you've used that from a global scale, looking at different industries and how that translates into what you guys do is fascinating to me, right? So how does that have effect on industries? How does that have effect on consumers? Using data in different ways and being able to analyze that and quote unquote simplify it in a way, I think is really strong. And maybe that's just kind of, I know that's kind of what SAS does, but it's interesting kind of hear you talk about and put into a case study standpoint. 
Yeah, I think it's, it, you know, it's one of the reasons I'm at SAS. I mean, I just, I love, I think marketing's role is really that translator to take these incredibly complex things and make them relevant to not just, you know, the people we want to have as our customers, those, those technology decision makers, but also humans as a whole. And yeah. on, honestly, you know, the bright, the, the silver lining in the pandemic was, it was a really great mechanism for us to show how analytics can make such a difference in the world. So that was really energizing and exciting to the team. I, I, you know, the, the marketers I work with, we, we met very frequently as we moved through this process and we were just so energized by some of the results that we were getting back. We had these great meetings, they were buoyed up. Maybe it was coffee, late nights, early mornings. I don't know. <laughs> I thought, I kind of thought it was just a passion for purpose and, and getting, getting solutions to customers quickly and getting information about that out in the market and creating that dialogue. It was really important to us. Now has throughout all this, have you seen any kind of brand awareness grow from SaaS? Have you guys that translated into the brand growing, being out there more? Yes, I think, you know, the, the trials environment, that data discovery environment definitely did. We're actually in the middle of a brand study. And my, my you know, vain hope as, as a marketer and working on this project is that some of that will pop out in the study that we'll start to see that. I think one of our customers at our, our global um, event that we held a little bit earlier in the year said it really well. We had to do that all virtually and, and we phased it kind of around the three phases of the pandemic. And we actually, I mean, the attendance numbers were phenomenal this year. Compared to the in-person event, we were a little, you know, obviously nervous, like many marketers. How am I gonna get attract people to staring at a screen for this event all, all day or, or, you know, for a couple of hours even. But we, we just got great results with numbers, numbers we'd never expected to see, which was fantastic. But just going back to one of our customers and how he kind of phrased it, we worked a lot with the Cleveland Clinic and Chris Donovan spoke at, on the, as a keynote at our um, user event. And he said it best when he said that SAS was a true partner. You guys work side by side with us to solve the problems. We heard so many times from sales that that was a new perception and a kind of a change in how maybe some of our customers and partners were characterizing us. Many of our customers felt we're really part of their team. We were there side by side fighting for solutions to this pandemic. So I'm hoping to see in our study a little bit of that pop out. Yeah. I find that mentality tends to, it, it's strengthened a bit during COVID. People are looking for teammates. They're looking for people who are going to be on their side and help them through it. They, everybody needs help through this. Like no one is sitting out there thriving through all of this. They, they're looking right. for help. They're looking for people who will work with them as opposed to just for them. And I'm finding that that mentality is getting far more appreciated now. And I'm curious to see how that's going to change uh, a lot of companies moving forward who will change their messaging, their marketing, and their content to be less service-based and more partnership-based. Yeah, I think it's a really great point, Chris. I think, you know, we were very tuned into what I will call empathy fatigue at the beginning of the pandemic. I mean, we all got emails from companies that we haven't done business with in years, right? Yeah. To your personal email saying, hey, the pizza you ordered three years ago, we're thinking of you in this tough time. And <laughs> and we, we really wanted to come at it from a different angle and focus on, hey, we're here, we're here to help. And this is how, you know, a lot more of that roll up your sleeves, we're in it together, we're going to get this done. So we, we learned a lot from the experience, particularly around messaging and, and 
some of the messaging strategies we put in place, I think, were will continue to resonate um, with with the market for, for several years, particularly around resilience and mm. and really being able to combine those unique solutions like we talked about with with the demand data and the health data in into getting solving these, you know, really challenging humanity problems. Yeah. For me, I think it's gonna be interesting when we do eventually get out of all this, how that's gonna change. We go about marketing, how it goes about you know, to your, to your point about conferences, is there going to be big conferences in person or are we going to be virtual? Do we go back to a hybrid workspace? You know, it's one of these things that, as I mentioned prior to the call, we're, we're all, as much as I think we don't want to be at home as marketers because we like interaction and communication, we've all adjusted to it, right? Mm-hmm. We've adjusted to it. My son has adjusted to Zoom calls and teachers um, and it's getting more comfortable. I don't know if it's good or bad. It's just a reality, right? <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, you know, even even when you think about education, I know that's on our minds a lot, right? As we, we maybe are in a virtual school environment here in North Carolina, soon to be going back to hybrid, but many, you know, more than 50% of our county has chosen to, to elect full-time virtual for the first semester. And it makes you think, what's the ultimate impact of all of this? Countries like Kenya have paused their education activities for a year. What's the impact of that just to the future of work? You know, all of our industries, all of our, our customers, all the, all the people we're marketing to rely on an educated workforce. And what's, what's this pandemic look like kind of, you know, 10 years down the line when we're expecting these kids sitting in front of a, a laptop all day doing their school to be able to act react and and act and learn in a different kind of environment it's it's fascinating i mean those are all great very serious thoughts my thought was i read there's gonna be no more snow days because (laughs) the snow days will just be remote learning because they'll be like just turn on your computer and you'll go on zoom but you bring up some really good thoughts as well (laughs) oh well i'm worried about snow days too you know when your internet goes down (laughs) Yeah, <laughs> and you have to go outside and shovel yeah. and things like that. I mean, yeah, you, 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 I, that's probably more relevant to right now than what I talked about, Mike, which is coming a little bit further down the track. Yeah. One of the things I've been thinking about lately, especially being home so much, and this is more of like just a broader piece of it, is internet is basically a utility now. It has to be classified as a utility because it's it's vital to literally the economy. It's vital to everybody's day-to-day life. And seeing how that kind of economy is going to to change up a little bit, I think it's going to be really interesting. And how more of these internet providers say like, all right, well, we're going to go into more of a philanthropic view of our, our product and maybe offering it to like areas that aren't, it's not available, going in and installing it and making those those places more accessible to the world. I think that's going to become a very big side effect of all of this because we had to work for a year almost, you know, remotely. Yes, and, and, you know, internet access is definitely a divider when it comes to, you know, equality, right? I mean, that's a big concern. My early career was actually in hospitality. And so most, you know, many friends and, and ex-colleagues across the world are still working in hospitality. And that's just been, I mean, just the transformation aspects that we're going through right now are fascinating. You know, starting to see hotel companies think through, wow, can we help with, 
extra capacity for hospitals? Can we help with extra capacity for governments to help with quarantine regulations as we're moving through this? I'm seeing more and more in the US that some of the hotels and resorts are turning on these schoolcations, which, you know, internet is a fundamental need to that. It is, it is a utility, as you said, Chris. You go, you stay in a resort, your, your kids are in a supervised area doing their online school, you're in a cabana by the pool doing your work all day. I mean, internet I is fundamental. <laughs> yeah, I'll sign up for that tomorrow. I almost moved to yeah. Barbados. They're offering a whole year for, for uh, you know, visa for free. There you go, Mike. Schoolcations are the new, <laughs> the new snow days, my friend. Exactly. <laughs> I have one last question. It's a very serious question. I've always debated with people. Yeah, go ahead. Do you say data or data? And is there a difference? Oh, my goodness. You know, if you'd asked me this 19 years ago, <laughs> I might have a better answer. I, yeah. Data or data? I don't say data. Definitely not. I say data. Data. Yeah, I'm a data. But I'm, there's a lot of data people out there. I am a data person. Chris? I'm a, I'm a data person too. Is this like the soda versus pop kind of thing? Like it's a regional I don't, location? I don't know. <laughs> it might be. I don't know. But I've always like, I don't know how people, yeah, it's just always confusing to me if there's a right way to say it. <laughs> it's all a mishmash in my head now. So I feel like I, yeah. I have a global pronunciation in some respects or still, still very Aussie, obviously. But, um, yeah. Sure. Awesome. Yeah. It's a good question. I think we should pose that as a poll to the audience. Yeah. I'll, I'll do that. <laughs> All right. Uh, Natalie, thank you so much for joining us. This was wonderful. Wonderful. Thank you so much for the opportunity. I really enjoyed the conversation with you, Chris and Mike. And yeah, we'll, we'll be an avid listener from now on. Awesome. awesome. Love it. Thanks, Natalie. Thanks. Thanks for listening. Please subscribe on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen, and please rate and review us. Plus, you can follow WalkWest on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and LinkedIn. We'll see you next time on the Talk West Podcast.